Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of scripture. Our passage today is from John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believe in him. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. Given that this is the last weekend of the year, I need to tell you, I've been consumed with thoughts about time. And actually, I've been consumed with thoughts about time much more than just this past week. Really, the last several weeks, I feel as though time has been flying by. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, in my head, I know that time continues to march on at the same pace uh, with steady uh, predictability. But for me, sometimes it feels as though time is, is rapidly flying. It's moving quickly, too quickly for my own comfort level. And I wonder if you felt that way too. Uh, things came to a head for me this past week, uh, candlelight Christmas Eve week. I, I feel as though I had been living at our Leewood location, which meant I had missed lots of evenings with my uh, son and daughter. I wasn't with them as much as I wanted to be with them. And, and then on candlelight Christmas Eve, I, I, after the seven o'clock worship service, my, my wife, she sent me a video of my daughter, Poppy, who's just three years old. And, and as she sent me that video, as I was by myself, uh, away from my family on, on, on candlelight Christmas Eve, uh, I was struck by that video. I should have been joyful but I felt as though time was marching on and I was missing it. Uh, here's the video that my wife sent to me on candlelight Christmas Eve of my daughter, Poppy. My heart is so happy! 
my hope is that your heart is so happy watching that video and my heart should have been happy watching that video, but all I could think as her dad was when did my daughter grow up so fast? Like, how did she become this person who can use full sentences, who understands her emotions, who's able to have conversations? It's like time is flying and, and, and I wanna slow it down. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, earlier this week, I received a, a, an image that someone shared with me that made me laugh out loud. I want you to take a look at that too. It describes the experience that most of us have uh, in the bathroom, but also in life. The closer we get to the end, the faster we feel like things go. And, and I've been reading a lot about this phenomenon, uh, this idea that, that time moves faster the older we get. And, and there's all sorts of reasons for why this is, why it feels that way. And some of those reasons have to do with, with our perspective and our, and our age. And, and what we recognize is that uh, hours uh, to kids feel like days for grownups. And so if you've ever experienced that, just by the nature of the length of life that we've lived, uh, for, for kids, uh, hours seem like days for adults, which is why when you take a 12-hour road trip with kids, 90 minutes into the road trip, they're asking, are we there yet? Because for them, it's already felt like days, when for their grownups, it feels like just uh, 90 minutes. And what we recognize is that our perspective, our age, uh, shapes how we view time. Kids who haven't lived as long, they look at time and it becomes a much broader portion of their life. For adults, the older we get, our, our sections or our measurements of time, they become much smaller, fractions uh, of our life lived. And so our age makes us appreciate time differently. The other thing we recognize is that the older that we get, the, the, the slower it takes for us, the longer it takes for us to process information. And, and so as we're constantly faced with new images and, and new information uh, because of our age, because of the, the length of time that we've taken to, to have these different kinds of connections, our, our wiring changes, our, our, our routing changes. It takes us longer to process new information the older we get because our connections are so much more broad. And so we never feel like we have enough time because it, the time it takes for us to process slows things down. We're always playing catch up. And we feel like that means time is moving much quicker because we're always uh, playing from behind. I, I kind of think of this like how you would download or, or try to stream media uh, with, with low internet receptivity or connectivity. It's like when you're trying to do that, processing information without enough bandwidth, what that means is you're constantly loading or you're constantly rendering. This is what it's like for us to process information the older we get. There's not enough time, never enough time. It's moving too quickly. Fatigue plays into that as well in the same way that anxiety does. Sometimes we find that we don't have enough time when we're tired or when we're anxious or afraid. Time seems to move rapidly, too rapidly for us, for our comfort level. How do you feel about time right now? Is time moving too quickly for you? Is it standing still for you? How fast is this sermon moving for you? Do you wish it was over already? Or are you right in the thick of it as, as though time is flying by? We all have things to say uh, about time. We love to talk about time. Uh, we have sayings about time. Sometimes we say some things get better with time and some things don't age well. Some things are timeless when other things are, are dated. Uh, I know many people who have said that time heals all wounds. We sing songs about time. We watch movies about time. Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies about time. We, we start bedtime stories saying once upon a time. There's, there's even a magazine with time in, in its title. By the way, did you know that this year's Time Magazine Person of the Year was Taylor Swift? I mean, is there nothing that she doesn't do? 
Uh, time is everywhere. We, we measure time. We remember time. We race against time. We invest time. We waste time. We desire to travel through time. It's like we focus on time all of the time. Did you know that the word time is mentioned in scripture over 700 times? That's a lot of time. What does scripture actually say about time? Well, actually, it says a lot. One of the, the favorite passages of scripture about time, it comes from Ecclesiastes, the, the third chapter. This is what we read there. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That's also a song about time, by the way, turn, turn, turn by, by the birds. Uh, but this whole section of Ecclesiastes, it, it tells us a profound truth that you've experienced to be sure, which is that there is a time and a season for everything which means there's a time for weeping. There's a time for laughing. There's a time for, for living. There's a time for dying. There's a time for reflecting. And Kevin Bacon in a movie about time says there's absolutely a time for dancing. If you haven't seen Footloose, I would recommend that you watch Footloose. But what we recognize in Ecclesiastes is that there's a time and a season for everything under heaven. And as you continue to read the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, what you recognize is that we don't control the time. We don't choose the season, but that doesn't mean we don't have agency and we don't have a choice. You see the times and the seasons, those rest inscrutably in God's unseen hands, but we have a decision to make for how we react to time. Do we live with it? Do we live into it? Do we dance with it? Or do we try to resist it, to fight against it with everything we have and all that we are? And so this in-between week before New Year's, after Christmas, I want to invite you to think about how you spend your time. Do you fight against it or do you dance with it? Do you resist it or do you try to make the most of it? J.R.R. Tolkien, he says that we cannot choose the times in which we live. All we can decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And, and that's the truth. What, what, we always have a choice with what we can do with the time that we've been given. And, and this is what Mordecai is trying to encourage Esther to recognize in the book of Esther. Mordecai was a Jew. He was living in exile. And he says to Esther, a fortunate woman living in a season of, of power, who is also a, a Jew, he says to her this notable piece of scripture about time. He says, who knows, Esther, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. In saying this to Esther, Mordecai, he was trying to encourage her to seize the moment, to, to make the most of this particular season in her life. He wanted her to make a decision. He wanted her to take action. He wanted her to do something with the season that she was in to set the Israelites free to change the world, to make a difference. He wanted her to appreciate the time and the season that she was in so that she would live fully into it and make a difference on account of what God has given to her. And I think this is what Mordecai was encouraging Esther to understand, but I think this is what God desires all of us to understand. God longs for us to make a difference, to seize the moment, to, to live into the time that we've been given, the season that we're in, so that we could change the world in every season. Matthew 25, this is what Jesus says about time. He says, keep awake for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus, in other words, he says, stay alert, stay awake, stay active. Don't take anything for granted. Make the most of every opportunity before you because you never know what's coming next because time is fleeting and the seasons of life, they're unpredictable. So, so stay awake, live fully for such a time as this. You have been called by God to make a difference in the moment, in the season, 
with the time that you have, the provocative question is, are you making the most of your time? Are you living into the seasons that are before you in a way that changes the world? This is how we should think about time. The ancient Greeks, they had two words that described time, chronos and kairos. And in chronos, it was most widely used and, and most understood as, as the word for time. It described a chronological time or sequential time. It was time on the move, like from left to right. And, and this is uh, the word that gives us other words like chronometer, which is how you meter time or, or measure time. It gives you chronic as something that happens over time. And, and you have all these different kinds of words that come from that. That's how we understand time. But there was another understanding of time that the ancient Greeks had too that was understood and defined by kairos. And kairos time didn't speak about time on the move. It was uh, talking about time's depth, the quality of time versus the quantity of time. And, and this is how we feel in the midst of time. And ultimately, I would say kairos time is, is God's presence inside of our time. It's God inside of Kronos. It's the depth, it's the feeling, it's being in the right place at the right time. Kairos moments are those moments where we find ourselves full where we find ourselves rich, where time seems to slow down and, and get deeper. I imagine this is an evening spent at home with family and friends. I imagine this is the kind of feeling that we get when we gather in a place like this on a day like this, singing Silent Night by Candlelight. It's like time stands still. It becomes rich and full of God's presence for us. This was Kairos time. This was a moment in time, the right time, full time, rich time. This is one of those moments of clarity or connection. It's one of those moments where we are filled to overflowing with God's presence in a way that triggers kairos, this moment, this, this clarity, this connection. This is how the apostle Paul describes Christmas, actually. He describes it as this fullness of time, this, this kairos moment. In his letters to the Galatians, the apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. What Paul is describing for the Galatians about Christmas is this kairos moment. He says, when the time was right, when the time was perfect, God sent his son to redeem us. In the fullness of time, God has sent his son to share the light with those who are walking in darkness. In other words, Christmas is one of those moments in times where, where God literally enters into our chronos into our chronological reality. And, and what he does is he fills it to overflowing with his light and his life. It pierces the darkness in a way that illuminates our surroundings so that we might appreciate everything we have more fully. And what Paul affirms as he continues in that chapter to the letter of the Galatians is he says that this moment, this Kairos moment, God's presence with us in the fullness of time, it should change us. It should compel us to live differently, to take action, uh, to seize the moment, to become like Christ for the world around us. Christmas should change us. It should force us to, to live in time differently. So the question is, did it? Did Christmas, this Kairos moment where God enters into our reality to be with us, did it inspire you, compel you, challenge you to become different, to change your behavior. I want you to reflect about that for a moment because I know Christmas is over, but Christmas isn't ever over. Birthdays don't ever mark the end of things. Birthdays mark the beginning of things, which is the beginning of a life lived in light of Christ. Christmas should be the beginning 
of how it is that we seek to live differently, how it is that we seek to live a life taking action in response to all that we've been given. And I believe that this is what the weekend is all about, actually. You know, with Christmas a, a week in the rear view, with, with New Year's just on the horizon, this is a weekend where we're to, to evaluate how it is that we're living, how it is that we're maximizing the gifts that we've been given, how it is that we are treating every season as an opportunity to change the world, to take action. Today is a day for deciding uh, who we're going to be and, and to become, what we're going to do in the year ahead, how we're going to live in light of Christ in the days that lie ahead of us. For such a time as this, you have been called uh, to act. And the question is, what will we decide to do? Which is why I, I chose the passage of scripture that we read just moments ago. It's an unusual scripture to read the weekend after Christmas, but it's a story that, that kind of points to Jesus in one of those moments where he was forced to decide whether or not he was going to act or, or not. And it happens in the second chapter of John. It's a wedding text from John where, where Jesus was first called into action. And, and I want you to hear these words again. And I want you to imagine what this scene and story would have felt like. This is what we read from the gospel of John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding when suddenly the wine gave out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I love this story because it points to a, a time when Jesus was faced with a decision to make at, at, a, at a time when everything else around him seemed to be standing still. At least it did for the bride and the groom. Why did it feel like it was standing still for the bride and the groom? Because uh, the wine had run out during their wedding celebration before it was even halfway over. And this would have felt like a disaster not to mention Mary and Jesus and all the disciples were there, but this would have been an embarrassing, humiliating kind of thing. I want you to imagine what it would have felt like had the wine run out at your wedding reception before it was halfway over. Things would come to a screeching halt. There would be no time for, for YMCA or the, or the cha-cha slide. Forget about the dollar dance. There, there was no time for anything. My guess is they hadn't even thrown the bouquet and everything had come to a screeching halt. This wedding had become a mess. Uh, the wine had run out. The spirits ha had left the building and everybody was wondering with time standing still, what would happen next? How would this party, this disaster, this mess uh, be redeemed? This might not seem like a, a big deal, like I might be embellishing this like a pastor, but, but you have to understand that wedding celebrations were, were, were opportunities to celebrate God's covenant of love through marriage. And, and this was a foundational celebration, not just for the families, but for the whole communities that they were set in. And so how you celebrated, how you worshiped, how you rejoiced this covenant faithfully and extravagantly for the whole community was how you made your name. That was how you were seen. That was your reputation. That was your faithfulness. That was your obligation or duty. And so for you to fail at that, to fall short before it was even halfway over would have been humiliating. It would have been embarrassing. This defined you. This was a problem for the bride and the groom and their families. And what I love about this story as it comes to a screeching halt is that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's the first one to recognize that there's a problem. 
She was so astute and she is so central to the gospel of John. Mary was there in the beginning and, and Mary would also be there at Jesus with Jesus at, at the very end of the gospel of John. And Mary in this story was the first one to recognize that there was a problem. She was at this wedding feast with her, her son and, and with all of his friends. And, and as she was there, she was looking around and she recognized that everybody's glasses were empty. And she thought, that's strange. And so she, she acts immediately. She takes it upon herself to, to go to her favorite firstborn. And as she goes to Jesus, she says to them, uh, Jesus, they have no wine. As though it's Jesus's problem. And Jesus looks at, at his mother and he's probably in his late 20s at, at this point. And as he looks at his mother uh, with some frustrated indifference, like a, a person in, in their late 20s would be at a wedding uh, talking to their mom, he, he says to her, like, what am I supposed to do about it? I mean, that's not what he actually says. He says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Did you hear what he said? His hour had not yet come. In other words, it wasn't his time uh, yet. There we go again with time, right? It's not the right time, Jesus said to his mom. It, it's not uh, the right setting. Everybody's watching. I, I'm too embarrassed. I, I'm not sure I can do anything about this. These are the kinds of things that we might say if we're thrust into action before we're ready to actually take action. I mean, what excuses do you throw for, for not actually being decisive, for not taking steps to become better, for not seeking to live differently? We all have excuses for these kinds of things, for inactivity, especially in those moments when we're feeling like we're being thrust into something before we're ready. Taking action, it can be hard to do. You know, growing up in my family in Michigan, uh, you need to know that everybody in my family, they loved riding roller coasters. And so every year, multiple times throughout the year, we'd go to Cedar Point, and that was America's roller coaster, Sandusky, Ohio. And, and, uh, and everybody would be so excited to ride roller coasters, except for me. I, I was afraid of them. I didn't want to ride them. And and I'll never forget the, the first summer that I actually waited in line for a roller coaster and made it all the way to the end of the line. And I made it right to the platform. I was so excited that I, I made it through and I waited to stay in line until the very end. What I didn't realize was how I was going to feel when I got onto the platform and I was actually forced to be in that place where I'd have to step into the roller coaster car itself to get on the roller coaster. And I remember after waiting in that first line, getting to that platform, and it was my time to get into the car, what I did was I just walked through. I walked into the car and then I walked onto the other side and, and I looked back at my parents and my family and I said, it's not my time yet. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to take that step, to take that action. It can be hard to take action. It can be hard to, to make the most of the moments that we have. It can be hard to, to seize the moment. Fear sets in, resistance sets in, reluctance always sets in. And, and what's happening in the story in John, the second chapter is, is Jesus is hesitant. He's hesitating. And you can hear it in his response to his mom who says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, Jesus was hardly gallant in this. He was hardly being Christ-like. And he was not saying what Mary was hoping he'd say, what she was hoping to hear. He was afraid or reluctant. But Mary perseveres. Mary continues. The story continues. Mary uh, shoots Jesus this motherly stare that seems to end, end the conversation. And, and she then turns to her servants and she addresses them. And this is what she says to them. Do whatever he tells you to do. 
In other words, Jesus, you're going to do it. Your time is now. You have to make the most of this opportunity. So Jesus, take action. And Jesus does. The story continues this way. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and, and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water, it had become wine and, and did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who drew the water, they knew. The steward called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, he, he took action. He did it. He, he solved the problem just like his mother encouraged him to do. He turned water into wine so the party could proceed. And John said that this is the first of his signs that revealed the glory of God. And, and the disciples, because of what they saw, they believed him in because they had witnessed the power of Christ who had the ability to change water into wine, to, to miraculously turn our messes into these most extravagant kinds of parties, into these messages. Jesus could turn our messes into messages. Or perhaps they saw something more. What do you see in this story? You know, see, so much attention is placed on the miracle in the moment, on Jesus' ability to, to turn water into wine, and we focus on the wine. But I think what John wants us to see in this story is the water. You know, water is a... a, a a symbol uh, in, in scripture. It's one of the most common symbols used throughout all of, of scripture. To, it, it points to, to reveal the God's glory. It, it points to reveal the identity of Jesus. You see water all throughout scripture, revealing God's power and God's presence with us. You know, water is used to cleanse us, to forgive us. Water is used to, to activate us or inspire us. Water is used to, to, to quench our thirst, to, to satisfy our desires. Water is used always throughout scripture. And in the gospel of John, water is one of those symbols that kind of runs like a silver thread all throughout the gospel. And, and here in the very first story where Jesus is called to take action, water is present in a very visible kind of way, in an under, understated but, but often overlooked kind of way that, that we need to pay attention to, to slow down time to understand. And one of the things that you do when you slow down to understand this story is you realize there is actually a ton of water that was mentioned in this story. Weddings were, were, were uh, opportunities for worship. And whenever people gathered for worship, they would prepare for worship and they would do so through the traditional rites of, of purification. And so you'd always imagine there'd be water there, but you never imagine there was this much water there. It's important to know that weddings, this, this worship full celebration, it was a time for, for Jews to prepare for this. And so they would have that moment to, to enter into that time of purification. And, and so you'd expect water, but you wouldn't expect the amount of water that they had. Like one cup of water would have uh, accounted for a hundred men to, to have that ritual purification as, as opposed to a, a hygienic purification. So they'd enter into the worship space. They'd, they'd touch the water and, and about a hundred men would use one cup worth of water. But do you remember the detail about the water in this story? We're not talking about one cup worth of water. We're talking about six stone jars filled to the brim with water. Each one of those stone jars would have held 20 to 30 gallons. 
of water, which means all in, in total, if you do the math, that's six uh, you know, you know, stone jars full to the brim with 30 gallons, that's 180 gallons. And, and remember, it only took one cup to purify about 100 men. And so, so how many people were, were gonna be at this wedding? How many people were going to be purified? How many people were gonna be present to celebrate, to witness this first miracle? More than 100, 180 gallons full. There was enough water to purify to satisfy the whole world, 288,000 people. What is John wanting us to see with this detail about the water? I think John was inviting us to recognize that at this wedding, there was enough water to purify the whole world. And then Jesus, without any effort at all, he, he takes that water and he transforms it into, into new wine so that the party can continue, which means he's been able to transform the water into wine, which means he has the power to change the whole world, which causes everybody reason for rejoicing. Not because they had more wine to drink, but because they, they, they saw that if these stone waters, uh, jars, they had enough water to purify the whole world, then these six stone jars of, of new wine could change the entire world. It could make all things new again. And Jesus, the son of God, was standing before them. He was able to do this miracle, to reveal this glory effortlessly. I mean, this was huge. Three days after the old wine gave out and the party died, Jesus took water, turned it into new wine, and he gave the whole party new life. This story is about a miracle in a moment. But this miracle moment, it points us to something much greater, something even more miraculous that would come three years later in the fullness of time. You remember that one too, right? Uh, it also happened on the third day, only instead of a wedding, there was a cross. And instead of new wine coming out of stone jars, the resurrected Christ would walk out of the tomb into the newness of life as the stone was rolled away. On Easter, we remember the, the worst thing it isn't the last thing, that God's power is greater than any mess that we might ever find ourselves in. And, and because God always uh, saves the best for last, that's what the wine steward says when he drinks from the wine. Everybody else serves the, the good stuff first and, and, and leaves the bad stuff for the end. But, but you seem to bring and to save the best for last. This is what God does. This is what Jesus did at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. This is what God does for us all at Easter. God saves the best for last, which means there isn't anything that we could ever find ourselves any season, any time where we are without hope because there are no endings by the grace of Jesus Christ. We always have hope. If only we just keep moving, keep walking, keep putting one foot in front of the next, keep seeking with everything we have and all that we are to strive with all of our being to make the most of every moment we have, every season of our life. When people, they thought the party was over, Jesus brought out new wine. When people thought that Jesus had died, Jesus rose from the grave and at Christmas time, as Jesus is being born, as we celebrate his birthday, we're called to see that this is just the beginning of it all. And we're called to live in the same way 
in the light of Christ, seeking to make the most of every opportunity that we've been given. Christmas time for me is the last weekend of the year. It's a time for remembering all of this and, and deciding what are we going to do with it? How is it going to change us? How is it going to inspire us? Who are we going to become? How are we going to live? How are we going to make the most of our time together, whatever season we might be in? Who knows, perhaps we're called for just such a time as this. I think about all the moments in Jesus's life through the gospels. And I think about what would have happened if Jesus wouldn't have taken that time to perform his first miracle, to reveal for us a glimpse of his glory, to point to us a reality about who he is and how the worst thing isn't the last thing and how God always saves the best for last. I think about what Jesus would have done if he wouldn't have actually endured the cross and all of its shame and guilt how our lives would be different because of it or, or what would have happened if Jesus didn't persevere through every season of his life? What would it look like for us if we didn't have the courage to press on in that same way? Put differently, what would your life look like if you sought to make the most out of every moment you had? To live differently, to seize the moment. See, Christmas is supposed to start new life. Start new rhythms. Birthdays are the beginnings of things, not the end of things. So how can you begin living differently in light of Christmas as we move into the new year? Because I believe for such a time as this, you're called to act. And so as we think about that, I'm gonna invite you to reflect over a few questions. And I don't want you to do this broadly. I want you to do this personally. And I want you to think about some of these questions. And if you want to, you will write them down but I want to ask them uh, for you to wrestle with them. And the first question is this, what do you feel compelled to change this year? Because now is the season for changing, for starting new patterns, new beginnings. What do you feel compelled to change this year? How do you resolve to get better professionally, personally, or spiritually? How do you want to be a better leader? How do you want to be a better family member? How do you want to be a better uh, disciple? What can you do? How do you resolve to get better professionally, personally, or spiritually? Who is God calling you to be or to become uh, this year? How do you want to be known, identified? Who is God calling you to be or become this year? And lastly, how is God calling you to act? How is God calling you to live differently, to act daily? What are the actions that God is inviting you uh, to take? You know, John Wesley, he was the founder of the Methodist movement and, and, uh, and, and throughout his lifetime, he sought to live fully. He sought to live without fear. He sought to make the most of every moment of his life. And, and uh, he made a practice every year of praying the same prayer annually. And, and it was the prayer uh, of covenant renewal, the Wesleyan covenant prayer. And, and it was a prayer that he prayed annually, but I believe that he prayed it daily much like our senior pastor, as he begins every morning uh, praying by his bedside, inviting God to use him. He gives his life to Christ every, every morning. I think John Wesley did the same thing using the words of this prayer. I think every morning he sought to place his life in God's hands so that he could make the most of everything that he'd been given so they could be used as God's instrument. And he prayed this daily as a reminder to make the most of every moment that we can't control the times or the seasons that we live in, but we can uh, affect our posture. 
We can choose to dance with them instead of fight against them. And so this prayer became a tool for him to remember how it is that we're called to live as one of God's instruments, called to seize the day, to seize the moment, to act decisively for such a time or season as this. And so as we prepare to close today, I'm gonna invite you to join me and everybody should have an insert. And for those of you who are online with us, we have a PDF available for you at core.org slash next. But for now, I'm gonna put these words on the screen so that we might close this time together, praying together uh, the prayer, the words of the Wesleyan covenant prayer. Would you pray with me? I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou will. Rank me with whom thou will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Gracious God, that you have us here. We pray that you would inspire us, that you compel us to live differently, to live with confidence, knowing that the best is always yet to come, that the worst thing is never the last thing, that we always have hope. So help us to place our trust in you and to seek to live courageously, boldly, the way that your son, Jesus Christ, lived first for us. Use us by your grace to change the world this day and every day in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.